millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. And I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School at the Australian National University and I'm also Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, based here at the Crawford School at the ANU. It's the end of semester, and so you may be starting to think about what you'd like to do next semester in 2023. If so, do go and have a look at our degree programs and our short courses. We've got some amazing things on offer. Visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Anna Greta, we had a wonderful conversation with our dear friend John Falzon about the budget last week. We did. It was wonderful. Listening to John's language particularly is always such a delight after the budget um, and perhaps even more so this year when we had both optimism uh, and some fairly solid reflections, I think, to go over. How did you find the conversation, Sharon? I always enjoy listening to John. It's a wonderful combination of of deep knowledge, um, both theoretical and practical, of deep compassion and that beautiful language, that beautiful way he has of phrasing his sentences. Um, so it's always a pleasure. But, yeah, I agree with you, Anna Greta, that it was nice this time to have a little bit of hope and optimism woven through that conversation. And And one of the really interesting things that's happened immediately following on from the Treasurer delivering that budget, is the announcement by the Treasury of um, an inquiry called Measuring What Matters. And this is a process that the Australian Government is now going through to consult with Australians across the country about what we should be measuring, about what it is that will help us to better understand our economy and our society. And so this, I think, is a really exciting opportunity for people from across the country. And I think many of our listeners will want to think about contributing to this process um, and to, to making a submission to that Measuring What Matters inquiry. If people are interested, you can just Google Treasury Australia and Measuring What Matters, but we'll also leave a link in the show notes. Anna Greta, I, I was so excited to see this announced. I think it's going to be such an interesting process. 
Now, as we said, I thought the budget might be the introduction to a significant change in in language and and a, a, a book that has many more chapters. Uh, and I think part of that change is watching this shift towards measuring the things that matter to us in our lives. Speaking of things that matter to us in our lives, today we're so excited to be recording the first instalment of a new bundle of episodes, this time focusing in on housing. Housing was, of course, a key focus of Treasurer Jim Chalmers' budget speech last week, with an announcement of a national housing accord and a commitment to build one million well-located and energy-efficient homes. But the so-called Australian dream of buying a house has become increasingly out of reach. In recent years, house prices have soared, leaving many people unable to buy their own home, particularly without financial support from their family. Those in rental properties have experienced rental price increases along with the cost of electricity rising quickly and housing affordability has, of course, becoming a serious problem. It's those in precarious situations, those in low socioeconomic backgrounds, people in precarious work and people experiencing homelessness who bear the brunt and the greatest burden of this challenge. So over the next few episodes, we will be talking about some of the key housing policy challenges from environmental issues to affordability to homelessness and to community building. We're hoping to reimagine a better future for housing in Australia, one that's inclusive, safe, resilient and sustainable, a future that allows us to be connected to each other and to the world. And so for this episode, we're excited to be joined by one of Australia's leading experts on how climate change impacts urban and regional planning at a time when floods and fires are making clear that our built environment, and in particular our homes, may no longer be fit for purpose. Professor Barbara Norman, it's wonderful to have you with us. Would you mind introducing yourself to the pod? Uh, certainly, and uh, thank you very much, uh, Anna Greta and uh, Sharon, for the opportunity to participate in this um, important discussion. So I'm now an emeritus professor at the University of Canberra, having uh, unleashed myself from full-time academia very recently in July, although I seem to be very busy regardless. And um, my background is sustainable cities, climate change, and and way back when, quite a long time in housing policy, including being housing commissioner for the ACT and working on the National Housing Strategy uh, with Brian Howe and Paul Keating in the 90s. So uh, bringing those threads together is, is something that hopefully I can contribute to. Barbara, it's lovely to have you back on the pod and congratulations on the unleashing. I think that's a, a big moment and, and hopefully lets you do um, some exciting things other than working, although it sounds as though you're still doing a lot of the work. <laughs> um, Barbara, I wanted to start off today's conversation by asking a, a really back-to-basics type of question, can you just talk us through why it's so important to think about climate change and the environment when it comes to housing and urban design? Um, I guess if we look at, at weather patterns and extreme events of late, it gives us a bit of an indication, but I'd love to hear your thinking about why that matters so much. Well, certainly um, from a global perspective, we're expected to grow from about 7 billion people to around 10 billion people. 9 to 10, depending on what, whose projections you look at, but tracking towards 10. And so that's, if you think about it, uh, we've taken a very long time to get to 7 billion, but, and we will be rapidly moving towards nearly 10 billion in a very short period of time. So that's the, that's the quantity we're dealing with. And domestically in Australia, we're, we're no exception in that we have significant demand for housing our expected population growth here. 
something like 25 million now to nearly 40 million by 2050. Again, those projections are because of COVID, they're sort of a bit um, fudgy around the edges right now, but the trend is all in the same direction, up and significantly up. So we have a lot of people to accommodate um, across the board. On the other side, we have uh, more and more considerations about where we can build and where we should not build and all the things in between. So they're like one end of the spectrum to the other. And there's a lot of options in between, and that's an important discussion. Um, not building on, say, coastal edges doesn't mean that you're quarantining that land from anything. There's multiple uses that can be done there. They just need to be compatible with coastal inundation, for example. Um, fisheries would be a good example. Coastal dependent uses, in other words. So um, uh, there's uh, significant demand that will continue to grow, and there's possibly less land that we can utilise uh, safely in accommodating that that population. So that's where planning becomes incredibly important. Investing in that land use planning, strategic planning, to uh, to look at these different dimensions and to come up with creative and uh, innovative and sustainable solutions to be able to house our future population. Just to finish on that, there's two sides to this coin as well, which have to come together. The nature of the development needs to be carbon neutral in the future, needs to be very environmentally sustainable, and on the other hand, not placed in areas where people will be at risk. Barbara, when you were last on the show back in March, I think a program that we had uh, recording with Mark Howden and talking with the two of you about the challenges in climate change policy federally, it was, of course, a conversation that took place in wake of the floods in Lismore and the surrounding areas of northern New South Wales. On that episode, we talked a lot about the unpreparedness we saw on the Australian landscape for the increasingly severe and frequent disasters that are already occurring as a result of climate change. I'm wondering whether you think that things have changed in the last couple of months or are we still underprepared? I think there's uh, more than think. I am sure there's, there's much more community awareness simply from being at the front line, I mean, even just with the fires in 2019-20, um, so there's going back a couple of years, uh, nearly everyone in Australia was affected. Surveys have shown either directly or indirectly. You knew someone who'd had any, been impacted by those fires. Of course, now we've had a succession of floods added to that, and so I definitely think that the, the awareness, community awareness has uh, increased significantly. Uh, in terms of being prepared, better prepared for the future, no, I don't think we've learned the lessons of the past and we have a long way to go. Um, and you can see still this sort of scenario of lots and lots of really well-meaning people out there holding sandbags, filling them up with sand, building kind of walls and higher walls and in a, and you're thinking, you must be thinking, uh, there must be a better way. Well, of course there is. And so, uh, we need to be introducing much stricter regulation around where development can be, uh, in the future. Thinking about, uh, more than thinking, acting on whether existing places that may have been flooded three, four, and some places up to seven times this year, whether that's really sustainable in the future. And so you're beginning to see at least a 
an awareness at the national government level. At least we have a national government that gets climate change and a really uh, positive step forward that uh, they are willing to act on climate change. Too early, though, to tell how that will translate, but at least in the last recent weeks they're talking about possible buyback schemes, introducing a pilot one in uh, northern New South Wales. I see other discussions now happening in Victoria. I could see this extending into other climate risks like uh, bushfire, high bushfire-prone areas. So I think that's, that's uh, again, a positive step. So the, the trend is positive, uh, just hasn't quite happened, uh, and that's quite understandable with a very new government. Uh, but it's a refreshing change from 10 years of denial, basically, around this space. So there's an increasing awareness both on the community level and at the national level, uh, government's starting to take this seriously, very seriously, um, because, uh, one, people are dying, and, two, the cost to the national budget will be quite staggering if we don't do something very quickly. I think uh, the other huge gap that has to be filled and won't be surprised to the listeners here has been um, over the last 10 years um, basically a cut to most of the research in climate adaptation, the abolishing of the National Climate Change Adaptation flagship, abolition of the flagship in CSIRO on adaptation. I was on the National Advisory Committee for that. Before that, we had a National Coast and Climate Change Council, which I was on. So that, that all went over a period of nine, ten years. And so, so, so the architecture behind providing informed advice to government on these issues is absent. And that will take quite a long time to build up. You can't just build that up tomorrow. So in terms of preparedness, we do have a long way to go, but I think there's goodwill at least, um, to, to try and make this work now. Barbara, congratulations are in order, not just because of your new status of, of emeritus professor, but also because you've just released a new book, Urban Planning for Climate Change. And in that book, you talk about some of the challenges and the opportunities when it comes to planning our cities and towns in a changing climate and, and with increasing extreme weather events um, and increasing climate emergency. Where does Australia need to start in terms of, of rethinking the way we plan our, our towns and our cities? We just need to um, start with, and this sounds very fundamental, and it's really a reflection of what I've just been discussing, we need to map the risks properly. And when I say that, because of the cuts to the Bureau of Meteorology, CSIRO, and I can go on, there's a lack of good, timely, and preferably real world, real time data coming through so communities have that information to be able to, to do their planning for the future. And I guess uh, an example is um, in the big package by uh, Biden's package, climate package that was released in September, very significant uh, statement came out of that to, and it's already been, it's already up on the web, was to establish a, a national climate portal to do exactly that. So you can go, I was playing with it just very recently the other day, you can go in and put your suburb in, it's got different scenarios, it's got all the latest data there. So that's something, it sounds very basic, but if you're going to have planning and and work out where you're going to live or not live, then you need this data and it needs to be up to date and timely. The second thing is we have far too much discretion still in our planning system. 
So a very key recommendation that came out of the Royal Commission on uh, Natural Disaster Arrangements after the bushfires 2019-20 was that there'd be mandatory, and that's not a word they use very often, but mandatory consideration of natural disaster risks in all land use planning. So in my book, I really discuss what that means, but also extend that to say that there'd be uh, mandatory consideration of all climate risks in all land use decisions. And it is one of the most effective ways to introduce change. If you think about the, the myriad of decisions that are made at every local council across Australia by state and territory governments, and even nationally, they are large landowners, uh, defence, just think of defence. If you think if uh, every time, every day, those decisions are made, they have to, in a mandatory sense, consider climate risks in those decisions, you can make quite a transformational change in quite a short time. So that's about embedding something into the process of decision-making. So the third thing is that we need a range of tools. Our planning system was really, you know, it's like many things. It was, it was inherited from the British and uh, really hasn't changed. You know, it's modernised over the times, of course, but it's still... Um, it's still designed for a stable, static land mass, not designed for an Australian landscape that's changing with climate change. Um, for example, coastal erosion is not factored in. And, and it's not just planning. The insurance system is the same thing. Uh, if your house is affected by floods, there's insurance cover. If your house is affected by the impact of a coastal storm surge from the coast, from an external offshore impact, you cannot get insurance for that. So we, we have these fairly uh, antiquated systems that are not equipped for a dynamic changing landscape and for planning for climate change. So that has to change. The tools that we have for communities to work with, things like scenario planning that I just mentioned in the, in the Biden administration's new sort of climate portal, um, often used in security, intelligence, those sorts of things. Uh, we need to be able to build those again into decision-making processes in our land use planning system. I could go on. I've got 10 key actions outlined in my book about having a number of critical things. First Nations people need to be at the table participating in uh, uh, decision-making around land use planning. Uh, if you think about it, even just in the Canberra context, are First Nations people at the table designing our next territory plan, a strategic plan? I think um, not adequately. So, but if you could think about that right across Australia, that would be a, a very, very positive step forward. The other thing is that it's a kind of old chestnut. And uh, again, a number of listeners will, particularly academics, will respond to this that uh, we still don't work well enough together. Uh, emergency management, you'll always see that it's emergency management being discussed after these disasters. Rarely, if ever, uh, couple of exceptions, I have to include myself there. Has anyone asked a comment from a planning perspective about how are we preparing for the future? And, uh, and the, um, again, a, productivity, a recent Productivity Commission inquiry into adaptation identified nationally that it was 97% goes into emergency response and 3% into preparing better for the future. So that gives you a, a picture of how prepared we are for the future. And I think just finally, without going through all of these, providing an inclusive platform for community engagement 
is incredibly important. And, and that's where I think something like a portal could be valuable. Um, just to increase the skills and understanding and capacity building, if you like, and the broader community around these issues. So when communities are faced with possible what I would call climate-induced resettlement, like the Lismores, like Grantham did very successfully in Queensland um, in the not to, in just a few years ago, then at least uh, there's a, a place where they can go to have these discussions, get access a lot of resources, look at leading practice around the world and in Australia and be able to have those discussions in a much more informed way to prepare options for the future. So there's there's just a few things there that we could explore further if you like. Barbara, there, there, there's a lot there to, to explore. One of the things that I would really like your thoughts on is when we start to think about doing things differently, when we start to thinking about how we we reprioritise and perhaps think much more imaginatively and creatively and bring different people to the table. You know, it always strikes me that there are lots of different interests at stake here. Um, we often, it often seems that planning decisions, particularly in cities, are driven by the interests of some developers where profit may be a main motivation. Um, and I must say, I look at some of the the recent developments, the medium density developments, not far from where I live, and I don't know how they would be assessed in terms of climate. But I've done a lot of um, work around planning communities for children, and these are, are communities that are, are, are not fit for children. There are very few green spaces. There are no footpaths. Very few places to play or even to walk. And it strikes me there that perhaps profit margins won out over considerations about how community, and particularly children, would use those spaces. What's your assessment, particularly when it comes to putting issues around climate and environment at the forefront, how do we start to balance and perhaps reprioritise some of those interests that are at play? There are a lot of vested interests, and um, I'm asked this question quite frequently, why do we keep building? And, and the same same thing, why do we keep building a flood? prone land um, because it's cheap and, and and the developers can build that and they're long gone before the consequences to the community. Planners, planners get a bad rap sometimes because I think quite often you'll find the planners have recommended something different. And uh, so we, and I'm, let me say, I'm not just talking about Canberra, I'm talking about Australia-wide, councils right across the, the country. Um, at the end of the day, it's the local councils, the local council laws that make the significant planning decisions, a new suburb, um, those sorts, not, not a one house development, but those sorts of big decisions. In fact, a lot of those go up to state ministers too, as well. So there's a lot of politics. Politics and planning is never far apart. And, um, we need to all be mindful of that. So I think, uh, uh, increasingly, I've been talking about the need for regulation. I, I just feel we've had 10 years of discretion or longer and advisory guidelines and leading practice and, and all sorts of kind of advisory notes, and it hasn't worked in my view. And so um, I'm very much coming down to the side. If you want to factor in climate change risks, if you want to put in environmental considerations, then you need to regulate for it. It's not going to happen otherwise. So that's, that's a fairly, that is, but that's after 40 years in planning and, and national president of the planning institutes so coming from a reasonably informed background. I absolutely think that's the case. And I'm seeing that in the UK. I'm seeing that in Europe. I'm seeing that in some states in America. 
classically New York and California. Uh, I think um, the second thing is um, financial institutions aren't divorced from this. And certainly I know that uh, for first homeowners, the one thing that the bank will really like if you want to get a loan as a first homeowner, seen as a risky, risky loan in their context, is that you maximise the development. They have four bedrooms and two carports, and they know that if you default on your loan, then that will be resellable very easily. So there's, I only know this anecdotally that there's uh, something, some good research needs to be done into this, but I suspect there's quite considerable pressure coming from that quarter as well. Otherwise, maybe considered, say, if you wanted to just a three-bedroom or a two-bedroom on a block and a, or a smaller house, uh, considered uh, underdevelopment of the site. So, again, if planning doesn't regulate that, then to say that 20%, 30% of the site should be for canopy, should be for green, for green space, should be for, for um, uh, recreation on site, then, uh, of course, the developer will go for the maximum coverage. The third one is skilling up the built environment professionals and the industry bodies like Master Builders Association, the plumbers, the construction industry about even if they have the best will in the world, there's a gap of knowledge about what is leading practice in terms of sustainable development, in terms of carbon neutral development. And so um, I think, again, there needs to be a very significant investment in that space really now, preferably 10 years ago, but now. And that has implications for universities and technical colleges and all sorts of places to provide that kind of TAFE, to provide that kind of practical training. I think just finally, just to finish without going on too long on this, the, um, uh, I have a real concern that even when we build something, take a, an office block, so I'm not talking about housing, that's um, uh, got a permit for, say, five, six, seven star. These stars keep going up. Let's say the highest star rating that we can have now. Nobody goes back to check. There's virtually no compliance checks. There's no assessment, what I call post-occupancy evaluation. Did all that greenery and infrastructure that looked fantastic on uh, day one when that building opened, uh, does, is it still alive two years later? Is it still being naturally cooled? Is it uh, are all the systems working? And so there's, there's, there's quite a few factors that come into play and there's quite a few pressures. Um, but uh, regulation and uh, performance monitoring is key to achieve these outcomes. Barbara, we'll, we're going to take just a, a short break there, but there is so much to talk about. We'll come back and perhaps move uh, a little more broadly in our focus and start to look at some of the work that you've done internationally. But listeners, don't go away. We will be back in just a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here talking with Emeritus Professor Barbara Norman, and we're talking about housing, planning, and the challenge of climate change. Before the break, we've explored some of the challenges, particularly in the Australian landscape, hearing about that dynamic interplay between politics, policy and accountability uh, being perhaps some of the leading challenges of the housing landscape. But now we'll turn our attention to the international landscape. You've previously written about cities that have publicly announced commitments to sustainability and you touched a little bit on the accountability around sustainable building practice. So particularly good examples include Kuala Lumpur, Copenhagen and New York. How similar are the experiences of those cities to those of Australian cities and and what lessons are we learning from those international standards? Well, Copenhagen, when you look at it today, you might think, ah, that's what they can do and they're different to us and doesn't relate to Australia. And that's not true because if you look at photos of Copenhagen, you can simply Google this yourselves. Have a look at Copenhagen, 1950s, 60s, 70s. You'll see it's a car-dominated city until a brilliant uh, leading urban design architect, a young girl, came along and introduced what I would call a very intelligent approach to transformation of that city, which was not to frighten people but introduce by design, strategic step-by-step processes over a period of years. Just close us, close one lane, put in some bollards here, uh, increase the cycling paths, but do it in a very systematic way. And, of course, today cycling is the dominant transport use in Copenhagen and incredibly sustainable. Now, that's had consequences for housing, of course, because it's become such an attractive city is that no one can really afford to live in. Uh, downtown Copenhagen now. So there are other policy issues that we need to look at. So there's some lessons there. There's a positive lesson about uh, with um, intelligent design, you can implement quite transformational change again, but over a period of time. So uh, it is quite achievable in our cities. The flip side of that is there's lessons that uh, we are already learning in Australia about affordability and housing affordability in areas that have gentrified, that have increased in quality of living and livability, attracted uh, lots of people and demand and priced out uh, lower income people, uh, renters and others from that. So we have a lot to think about there to try and do that better in the future. San Francisco, of course, did that very um, successfully for a long time and they had a, a rent cap and that was kind of ended up in a divided society now in San Francisco. My daughter lives in Santa Cruz, so I, I get to have a look at San Francisco more closely. And, and um, there were those who still live on that rent cap that was introduced in the 80s, up to the 80s in San Francisco and can live downtown San Francisco today very affordably. And then there are those who have moved 
most recently, and it's just off the charts, and that's been the impact of Silicon Valley and others. So, But it can be done. Rent controls can be implemented. That would be something radical for this country, but I'm just sharing different examples around the world in countries not dissimilar to us. In um, New York, I think, just again, they've had a long policy of um, uh, climate council comprising the leading scientists nationally, NASA people, on that council, and they introduced a bylaw locally that um, the latest IPCC science law has to be implemented into the planning system and every new strategic plan for the city of New York. So it's just a matter of course, and you'll find the same thing with London uh, and their um, climate change. They have a different history in the UK. It hasn't been a political football. It's had a bipartisan approach to climate change action and the IPCC work and every all those. Um, and so uh, it's they're much more advanced in that sense. And we can certainly do that. Barbara, the United Nations Climate Change Conference COP27 starts on Sunday in Cairo, and it's notable this year's conference has seemingly received significantly less coverage than last year's event in Glasgow, which of course was a pent-up one after being deferred uh, for the year before. In Glasgow, the Australian government announced a national climate resilience and adaptation strategy, which may have been a step in the right direction, albeit a limited one. Are you hopeful of seeing some meaningful progress at this year's negotiation when it comes to climate resilience and adaptation, both for Australia and in that broader global context? I am hopeful, but I'm always hopeful, Anna Greta. (laughs) Aren't we all? You've got to maintain hope, yes. (laughs) I am, and I've participated in COP. I'm not attending this time uh, just for, for other reasons, but I am hopeful in that the uh, very importantly, the, um, Gl- the Glasgow Climate Compact that was the outcome of COP26 for the first time asked that each nation implement climate change adaptation in their national, regional and local planning systems. And so nations will be expected to report back on this. I suspect they won't be ready. But they will be asked, and I see that as, again, in this kind of glacial movement of these international agreements, that uh, there will be an expectation next year that that will be more advanced. So I think that's a good step forward. Um, I think that the extreme events we've had in the last five years globally, uh, and there's a lot of figures in my book around this, but it's, um, uh, you know, it's actually in, in the tri- not the millions, not the billion, trillion dollars, US, the OECD's estimated, uh, the cost of these disasters in just recent years. And uh, so if, if governments are not focused on the human tragedy, which of course they should be, or the environmental tragedy that's occurring, the, um, they'll definitely be focusing on the financial implications at the national level. And that may well, I, I am convinced that will bring them to the table. Uh, that whole combination. So I just think we are at that tipping point and I suspect we're tipping over that tipping point. Um, uh, for, for So I am thinking more positively uh, around action. Whether it's fast enough, I have my doubts um, as to that. But with uh, the leadership in the US, the leadership in Australia um, and commitments in Europe, who's very strong, and some of the actions in India and China are different in different spaces around renewable energy, particularly. Then I, I'm more hopeful. 
Um, in our region, the Pacific region's very actively advocating around this uh, space of adaptation, um, clearly an immediate impact on people's livelihoods. Indonesia, and I cover both the Pacific and Indonesia in my book, uh, Indonesia faces and has passed a national law, moving Jakarta, you know, mere it's around the size of Australia's population, Greater Jakarta, 24, 25 million people in the not-too-distant future, starting with 10 million very soon because it's going under, basically. They've got two problems. They've got, it, they've got um, sinking as well as inundation. So um, they have a very – it's the serious. And um, I have a quote from Biden in my book around this thing where he really says this is not just about the environment anymore. This is around national security global security of these issues. If we look at uh, the figures around uh, expected mass migration from the impacts of climate change, Africa, India particularly, particularly Africa actually, through uh, drought and um, uh, migration through heat and drought um, in those countries, just millions of people uh, by 2050. So Look, if these things aren't triggering the minds of nation state leaders, I would be deeply concerned, but I actually think that they will be. And I, I, I think adaptation will be at the forefront of this conference. I just will make the other point because I already know my, some of my colleagues, what their response would be to me would be as long as that doesn't take away from the main game, which is to get emissions down. So, of course not. Like We can do both at once. Barbara, you, you pointed out quite rightly that President Biden and others have made the point that this is, is also about national security. But, of course, some of the issues that you're mapping out so powerfully for us are also about human rights and, and equity. That was one of the themes that came powerfully out of COP26 in Glasgow last year. And uh, we had Siobhan McDonnell and George Carter on the pod a couple of times talking about those issues of, of equity for Pacific Island nations. If we take some of those issues around equity and, and bring them closer to home, we already have a housing market here that's prohibitively expensive for many people um, and which is leading to housing insecurity and entrenching intergenerational disadvantage and, and leading to homelessness for many. And this is something that we see being exacerbated by climate change. You know, I've been doing research in the Shepparton region in recent months where there was already such a housing crisis and you know, now we see thousands of housing houses lost. In this series that we're, we're just starting, we're, we're wanting to think about how we can reimagine what uh, a fit-for-purpose and equitable system might look like. And considering, you know, how equity fits into that, as we rethink how we plan our cities and our homes, how can we ensure that we're creating places that are inclusive and safe, as well as resilient and sustainable? And in particular, how can we ensure that those people who are living in situations of real precarity, of home, of, of housing insecurity, of homelessness, have access to secure and affordable housing? in a context of climate change and climate emergency? Yes, well, it's a big question. Um, the um, takes me back nearly 30 years for the national housing strategy that was done, which was, uh, I mentioned Brian Howe, I mentioned Paul Keating, but people like Meredith Edwards led that process and really quite a distinguished group of people when I look back and a great opportunity for, for many of us who were much younger then. Um, and we looked at many of these issues wouldn't have been climate change, but a strong environmental focus. 
I mention that because it is about bringing these threats together. So we cannot resolve these things by having a climate strategy, an energy strategy, a housing strategy, transport strategy, if we don't knit them together. Now, fortunately, we have a new prime minister who gets this. Anthony Albanese uh, was the architect, uh, the then minister for climate change in 2011, who led the process to develop a national urban policy. And it did bring, it was triple bottom line and it brought all these dimensions together. Unfortunately, that went by the wayside with the change of government. I am very hopeful that that will have a future. Um, not this year. They've got a few other major issues right now, um, uh, all affecting housing, of course, with interest rates being the, the primary one. Um, but I'm hopeful that uh, that, uh, that will be coming to the fore soon. I mention this because I know I'm a professor of planning. I'm not just saying this, but that's where planning can make a, a very significant contribution, provided it's done with local communities in a very inclusive way and brings people together. Housing, I've seen housing dealt with um, public housing and social housing in different ways. I helped set up community housing in Canberra when I was a housing commissioner, so that was way back, you know, 20, 25 years ago, and it required me to move as the housing commissioner because I owned all the public housing stock in the legal sense in that role, statutory role, to to uh, donate, to give a certain amount of housing stock to community, this little fledgling thing called community housing Canberra at that point. The cultural resistance to that was really, really significant, even from the staff in ACT Housing who said, that's our housing and we're not letting one public unit go to that thing called community housing. And I could see where they were coming from because they had a waiting list and why should we? So um, the mechanisms behind this are really important. Coming back to your larger question, how do we resolve all this at once? Um, it is around an integrated strategy at all different levels. Um, I spoke just uh, at a community forum. I might have mentioned it in my last podcast, actually. But anyway, out at Orange, Orange is trying to, as a community, classic regional centre, suffering growth pressures, hospital where staff have got nowhere to live. Some are sleeping on couches. Um, the rents are unaffordable. So, you know, and this has only become more serious since I last was out there and uh, I look forward to going out and working with them over the next year in uh, pro bono, really, just helping them work through some of these issues um, and a community base. So they're looking to try and bring these threats together at that local level. What they need is support from higher levels of government to be able to do this properly. You know, they're trying to think of, how can we afford to pay for consultants to help us advise on this? How can we work with the council? How can we work with the state? So there's no framework. So I actually think that proper funding streams from the national level to the local level to provide, provide for what I would call climate resilient plan, urban plans for every local council across Australia is needed and uh, needed now to be able to collectively bring people together to have a framework to develop these future plans and to look at housing together with transport because you have to have both. You can't, no point putting cheap housing somewhere in areas at risk with no public transport. You're not doing anyone any favours there. In fact, it's an awful scenario if you think about it. So bringing these different dimensions together and uh, 
and, and developing uh, community-based plans. It can be done. It can be done very well. But they have got no resources and they need the support to do that from the state and national government. Barbara, you're reminding me of the work that's done by uh, Millie Rooney and her organisation Australia Remade uh, on the public good and the role that things like housing play in helping us to have meaningful lives, lives that facilitate care, connection and contribution, but also are such a, housing being a central part of how we form and establish communities, communities that, that will offer us the resilience that we will need as the climate changes. And I could listen to you talking about weaving together those different threads of policy for, for a long time, but we are going to need to wrap up today's conversation. I would love to hear uh, our, our perhaps least favourite question uh, for our guests. What's your one piece of advice for Australian policymakers as we look towards the housing challenges in the next decade? What would you like them to do well? I would like them to embed in a mandatory sense, and I've discussed this, um, a requirement for carbon neutral and climate sensitive housing, affordable housing in the future. If I can have a second kind of part to that, we need to have publicly funded demonstration projects to show how that can be done. And that could be done with a community housing organisation, could be done with the government, could be done in partnership with industry uh, because there's a great um, apprehension out there. If we do what I just said, it will raise the cost. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, I could even just mention the Fenner building at ANU. Carbon neutral came in under budget, functioning quite well. So we have a lot of examples so that uh, – so make it mandatory, and then demonstrate collectively how we can do it. That's the pathway forward. This has been a wonderful conversation, and they are such powerful pieces of advice that you leave us with. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great pleasure. Um, thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Anna Greta. Sharon, what a wonderful conversation. I feel like Barbara has drawn together some of the multiple threads that have weaved through the pods of the last year or two, and particularly she again reinforces with intelligence and an extraordinary worldview the power in using both science as we understand and appreciate the challenge of climate change an imagination that starts to bring communities together, working together, uh, building houses and building communities and building spaces where we can enjoy time together uh, it, that will survive what will be an unprecedented experience in the future. What were your thoughts on today's conversation? Oh, I really loved that conversation. It was a fascinating conversation and ranged across so many issues from the very local to the global and brought together the challenges that we are facing, not just in our own communities, but right around the world. But what really struck me when I listened to Barbara talking is that we have the solutions before us. They're not always easy. We're often talking about you know, a great deal of complexity, but we can see, as you say, Anna Greta, how to weave those threads together in a way that does provide us with solutions. And so once again, I'm, I'm struck by the, the hope for the future and the promise of uh, us being able to resolve some of these deep challenges in ways that are equitable, that are inclusive, that bring about social justice 
and that look after our planet as we're doing that. Now, I was also struck by Barbara commenting on the need to have First Nations knowledge and expertise at the table when we're thinking about these things. And in Australia, we are so fortunate to have First Nations peoples to be able to share with us such deep and long knowledge of this country, if only we're prepared to listen. And it does seem like that preparedness to listen is slowly growing. The other thing that really struck me, Anna Greta, was when Barbara was talking about the Keating Howe years and the National Housing Plan. You know, I I was speaking recently at a forum about the the way in which under the Keating Hawke governments we saw um, child poverty decline in Australia. We know that, you know, the, the the accessibility of universal health care increased at a particular time in history. You know, we seem to have lost two or three decades of creative and imaginative thinking around policy in Australia, but it's exciting to see that perhaps we are finally back on track and we're starting to think in, in new and exciting ways. Mm, absolutely. Again, weaving together the threads of interdependence that if we can get a housing strategy right that builds and inspires a whole generation of younger people and children, uh, that the benefits in terms of their health and well-being as they age are significant. Uh, these things are all interrelated. So, listeners, it's been an inspiring start to our conversation, our series of conversations on housing. We're very much looking forward to continuing this over the next few weeks. We will, of course, leave a link to the publications that we've discussed today in the show notes. We do love hearing from our audience, so please reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum. You can send us an email to podcast at policyforum.net or you can join us on our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. We are looking forward to next week's conversation, but for me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. And for me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.